The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. The text for this morning is coming from Jeremiah. We're fast-forwarding a bit, so we looked at chapters 1 and 2, but now we're going to sort of jump over chapters 3 to 6 and get into chapter 7. Okay, As I said, we're not going to be covering every single chapter in our look at Jeremiah. Okay, And so if you have your Bibles with you, we'd invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. And it reads, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all your offspring of Ephraim. Let's pray. Lord, even as we heard Dave and Carolyn's presentation this morning, we are reminded of your heart for the greater world around us and your burden for those who do not know you. And we pray that this morning as we look at these words of Jeremiah and see your heart once again, that you would open our eyes to understanding what the fundamental call is that you place upon our lives and what it really means to live for you and for the things that are close to your heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I need to do again a little bit of a, a history recap in order for you to understand what's happening here in Jeremiah chapter 7. Um, after this, one of the great kings of Judah, King Hezekiah died. His son Manasseh became king of Judah at the age of 12. And he ended up reigning for 55 years in Judah. Manasseh would go down in history 
as the most wicked king in Judah's history. Um, he was as bad as it got as far as the kings went. Uh, he completely rejected God. And then he encouraged his people down a path of pagan worship and idolatry. He brought in prostitutes from foreign lands and pressed the people to sleep with them as an act of pagan worship. He brought magicians and sorcerers from foreign lands and he used them to manipulate the people to turn them away from God. He killed many innocent lives and he took advantage of the most helpless in society, the widows and the orphans. This is the world into which Jeremiah was born. These incredibly dark days. You can imagine what it must have been like to be a child in those days, living in that kind of environment. After King Manasseh died, his son Ammon succeeded him at the age of 22. And everyone wanted to see what kind of king Ammon would be, if he would be better than his father, and it turned out he was not. He was just as bad as his father. In fact, after only two years of his reign, the people had had enough. And his own officials ended up assassinating him, murdering him. Ammon's son, Josiah, became king at the age of eight, as I had mentioned before. And the remarkable thing is that despite the wickedness of his father and his grandfather, Josiah would bring about one of the greatest religious reforms that Israel had ever experienced. He tore down all of the places of pagan worship that his father and his grandfather had erected. He got rid of all of the prostitutes and the sorcerers. And it's really a remarkable story if you think about it. How coming out of that kind of family heritage, Josiah was able to beat those odds and live so righteously. He had no good role models in his life, you know? His father was horrible. His grandfather was horrible. You sort of wonder if there was an uncle in the picture or something. How does a young child at the age of eight know how to pursue God and live differently than those who came before him? I think it's actually a wonderful testimony of God's grace, of how any of us have the power to overcome even the worst family backgrounds, whatever dysfunction you feel like is intergenerational in your family. And when you look at the life of a man like this, Josiah, and how despite the horrible upbringing he had, he was able to rise above that and do something amazing in his lifetime for God. At the young age of 18, 10 years into this revival, Josiah cleans out the temple. And he hires carpenters and masons to rebuild it because it's in such disrepair. And then he reinstitutes temple worship as the Israelites once again come to offer sacrifices there. Jeremiah was probably about 20 years old when Josiah's reform began, just shortly after his call to ministry. And as a prophet, as I said in my last message, Jeremiah would have been a part of this reform. He was probably one of the most prominent preachers proclaiming the message that Josiah was living out as king. And so if you look at chapters 3 to 6, there's these very key messages that 
Jeremiah is giving to the people. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 2 says, Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. And so Jeremiah just holds no, you know, pulls no punches and just makes it very clear, you have lived wickedly. And it's interesting, as I said in the last message I preached, how much of Jeremiah is spoken in this language of love. You know? It's about love. You love others more than God. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 3, it says, This is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. What Jeremiah is saying is that after just decades of this rebellion against God, it is like a thick crust of hard soil has formed over your heart. And now nothing can penetrate that. There's this insensitivity, a dullness that sin brings into our life. And so Jeremiah says, this is a work that God has to do that you got to plow that unfallowed ground and break up the soil of your heart so that once again you can receive what God wants to give because it's just washing right over right now. Jeremiah calls them to look back to their roots, their spiritual roots. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is. And walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. What Jeremiah is saying is, when you're living in sin, you become lost. You become disoriented. In the last message, he compared the Judah, people of Judah to like a wild vine growing out of control. And he's saying, you got to find these well-worn paths. It's like the paths that a wagon wheel would make. You know, it's saying, rediscover those old ways that your fathers once knew. You, you almost wonder if Jeremiah was thinking back to the discovery of the Bible in the temple. And when he discovered that book of the law, he said, this is the guidance we need. These are the old ways of our forefathers that we have lost. And so he says, let's get back on these paths that are going to lead us in the right direction in our life and discover what God wants for us in our lives. So the turnaround seems amazing. There is this huge spiritual spring cleaning that happened under Josiah's leadership. Pagan worship practices were all stopped. The altars of the pagan gods were torn down. The prostitutes and the sorcerers have been cast out. And people are once again worshiping in the temple. But here's the interesting thing is despite the impressiveness of Josiah's reform, God tells in chapter 7 for Jeremiah to go to the gate of the temple and as the Israelites are entering to worship God, actually walking in there to worship, he says, give them this message. In verse 3 to 4, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It would be like if some guy was standing right at the entrance of the foyer there, you know, and as you're walking in, just wagging his finger at you. You know, what do you think you're doing, you know? What's the problem here? What's the problem? It, it, it doesn't almost make sense. Revival has happened, hasn't it? Things are back the way they should be. 
It's, it's like Jeremiah is a guy that perpetually sees the cup half empty, right? Such a pessimist. Like, that, that's how the Israelites must have felt. What's your beef with us? <laughs> like, we got rid of all those pagan gods, and now we're worshiping here. Isn't this what God wants? Isn't this what you told us we're supposed to do? Jeremiah's central message to the people of God are this. The reforms, though impressive as they look outwardly, were largely superficial. Were superficial. The idol worship may have been removed from the land, but the hearts of the people had not actually changed all that much. This is years of rebellion and sin that don't get turned over overnight. And therefore, we find Jeremiah standing at the front of the very temple, which was the centerpiece of this successful turnaround for Israel. And he delivers that message in chapter 7. Watch your ways and turn from them. Because this is not what God is pleased with. Eugene Peterson says this of Jeremiah's sermon. The reform was accomplished. Everything that a king's commands could do was done. Conspicuous crime was stopped. Superstitious religion was sent packing. Immoral worship was banned. But getting rid of evil does not make people good. It didn't take Jeremiah long to realize that the reform was only skin deep. Everything had changed, but nothing had changed. The outward changes had been enormous. The inward changes were imperceptible. Their religious performance was impeccable. Their everyday life was rotten. The outside is a lot easier to reform than the inside. Going to the right church and saying the right words is a lot easier than working out a life of justice and love among the people you work and live with. See, they were all feeling so good about themselves. They were all giving each other attaboys, you know, like, hey, we're, we're there on the right track. We're doing well. They're offering sacrifices. And their mantra was, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And they were going through all of the right motions. But God says, but your heart is not in the right place. That reform was necessary that Josiah was doing, but what Jeremiah was saying, but it is not enough. It is not enough. The Israelites thought that as long as temple worship was going on, as long as the animals were being killed at the altar, that things were good with them and God. But more than these religious acts of devotion, God was saying, I want your heart. I need your heart. So what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 29, verse 13, it says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. And all of this made me think about the metric by which we determine our success as a church. What is it by which we're going to evaluate the health of ICC? Because I think the truth is, at least outwardly, it feels like we're kind of on an upswing, you know? Maybe we can look and then go, what is it? Is it the attendance rolls? How many people are showing up every Sunday? Is it the size of our budget? 
Is it the professional quality of the production we put on every week? Is it the reputation that we're garnering in the Chicagoland area? Because I think what God is saying here is that's not a stable foundation on which to judge how well you're doing with me. The temple, in other words, gave the Israelites this false security that everything was going well. And they could keep pointing at it. There's the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And God was saying, that's a meaningless statement to me. And I wonder for you personally, what are some of those false securities that you can hang your hat on to make you feel like I'm doing okay spiritually? Maybe it's the fact that you said the sinner's prayer at one point in your life so that no matter what you're doing right now in your life, you say, hey, I said the prayer. I confess my sin. I'm good with God. Or maybe the fact that you were baptized in the church. Yeah, I had the water poured over me. What more do you want? Or maybe it's even the fact that you feel you're attending the right kind of church, a Bible-believing, evangelical church like ICC. (laughs) And yet maybe God's words to you may be, don't say, I said the sinner's prayer. I said the sinner's prayer. I said the sinner's prayer. Or don't say, I go to ICC, ICC, ICC. Verses 9 to 11 says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What Jeremiah is saying is this. God cares as much about what happens in your life outside this time of worship as he does during these Sundays. And he says, when I look at your life outside of these overt moments of worship, it's like you're living two totally separate lives. And so he says, what church has become for you is a den of robbers. Meaning, you live however you want out there, And then you use church as your justification to say, I'm good with God. It is religion at its worst. Bargaining with God that I'll go to church on Sunday, but let me do what I want Monday through Saturday. That's my time. And God says, what that reveals is you really haven't been changed on the inside. Religion for you is just a veneer, a facade that you put on which has very little meaning to God himself. It's interesting that the measuring stick that God uses is not how well they know their Bibles or how much they pray and fast or whatever else we may think, how much quiet time they're doing. The measuring stick that God uses as his argument against them is how much they are practicing righteousness and justice in their lives. Verses 5 to 7. It says, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. 
In other words, it is a call to social justice that God demands of his people. And that call is found everywhere in Scripture. It's one of the most dominant themes of the Old Testament prophets, and it's found repeatedly throughout the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3, it says, This is what the Lord says, Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do not wrong or vi- do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8 to 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. What God is saying throughout the pages of his word is there is this endless imbalance that exists in our world. And God's people need to be involved in righting that wrong of the fundamental inequality and oppression that every generation of his people will face. It's an acknowledgement that whether it's because of your race or your socioeconomic class or maybe the tragedies you've experienced or frankly even poor life decisions you've made, there are always going to be people on the margins of society who are struggling to make it. And what God says to his people is, If you really are my people, look after them. Help them. Show them my love and my care for them. That's why the Israelites were commanded, when you harvest your own fields, don't do it too thoroughly, but leave some of the grain behind so that the poor can come after you and reap the unpicked grain and have something to eat for free. These kind of considerations are found everywhere in Scripture. There's this special attention being paid to immigrants. and says, the immigrants who, lo- who live among you, be especially careful to help them. Because why? They are the ones who are most likely to have their rights trampled on and to be marginalized by the majority. And it's interesting, when Jesus comes to the earth as God becoming man, he represents that same heart. It's just undeniable. Who are the people that Jesus constantly goes to? It's not the establishment Jews. It's the beggars, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. It's the lepers. It's the crippled. It's the widow, the orphan. These are the people that Jesus is seeking. And it seems to be this undeniable message from God. This is where my heart is for the people that the world has left behind. And these are the nobodies in society that no one cares about. And yet if you know my heart, you would get involved in that social justice work to reach out to the forgotten and discarded. That same social justice concern is found in the early church. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And you know, this heart for social justice flows out of God's own character. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 to 24. This is what the Lord God, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, 
declares the Lord. Psalm 68, verse 4 to 5, represents the same heart of God. Sing to God, sing in praise of His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before Him, His name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy dwelling. This is the clear message of Scripture. God's heart aches and grieves for the ones who are least able to defend themselves, the ones who are most likely to be abused and used in society. And as I was reflecting on it, <clears throat> I actually preached this message about 20 years ago, and I was looking at my notes from that sermon. And I realized that in the previous time I preached this text, I had completely ignored the whole social justice aspect of this text. It doesn't show up anywhere in my notes. And what I realized as I thought about this, it strikes me how we can be so devout in our religion and yet have no concern about the things that really matter to God's heart outwardly, about the most disadvantaged in our society. To have a, a completely inward-facing, self-absorbed faith that keeps us from getting involved with the injustices of the world. And it becomes like a, a boutique religion in which it's all about us and what we're going to do for our community and our people. And I, I don't want to push that down. It's not like that isn't important. But when we read through the witness of God's own word through his Bible, it's just astounding how often this theme of social justice comes up as one of the primary hallmarks of God's people demonstrating compassion and justice and righteousness in a world filled with abuse and oppression. It's weird. I feel like this, I've been on this schizophrenic journey because in my previous career as a missionary doctor in Africa, um, I felt like my entire life was defined by social justice, you know? Um, whether it was about trying to turn the tide of HIV-AIDS in Africa, or trying to deliver affordable health care to the most impoverished in Africa, or whether it was actually rescuing young girls from female genital mutilation, what's called female circumcision. I mean, this was what I was fighting for. I was a crusader in that time, looking for one injustice after another in Africa. But now as a pastor in the suburbs of Chicago, I feel like I've done a complete 180, you know? And my entire life is prayer meetings and Bible studies and counseling appointments. And it's com it feels like my entire life is completely within the walls of the church. And it pains me. It weighs my heart very heavily. I've said this before in past messages, but, you know, this life of suburban America, it is so hard to even know that there's a need out there, isn't it? Because living in suburbia, you're completely walled off from all of that pain out there, right? All of the brokenness, you know? Like, I, I realized my entire week is spent sort of coming here to the church office, I get into my car, and I go to my home, and I hit the garage door opener, and I pull the car in, and I'm in my castle, you know? And you don't see beggars on the street in suburbia, you know? You don't see panhandlers. You don't see HIV-affected people walking the streets, riddled with AIDS. 
You don't, you, you don't see ex-cons. <laughs> you, don't, you don't see any of this. You have to go out of your way <laughs> to say, I want to get involved with this. I want to deal with the pain that's in my community. And I want to look for it. I want to hunt it down and know what it looks like in Wheeling or Palatine, Arlington Heights, Vernon Hills, Glenview, Northbrook. I, I want to say this. Um, there's a lot of activism, I think, especially that has been promulgated by the millennial generation, you know, the, the millennials. It's, it's all about activism and social justice and making a difference. And you see that a lot in social media. And I think there's a real danger that as the church, we can just sort of get on the bandwagon and just mirror what the world is doing. And I want to argue that the picture we get of social justice in Scripture is very particular, and it comes from a very specific direction. That passage that we looked at, that verse we looked at just a moment ago, Jeremiah 22, verse 3, it's interesting how often these two words, justice and righteousness, are found together. They almost always go hand in hand. Justice and righteousness. In other words, the ministry of God's justice flows out of his righteousness. It is ultimately the fight for social justice is a fight against sin. Let me kind of explain that a bit. Because what the message of the Bible is, is it is the transformation of our hearts as we find victory over sin that makes a natural extension into social justice in the way that we get involved in our community at large. Let me point it to you like this. As God's people, we fight against the sin of sexual distortion. But for most of us as Christians, what that amounts to is I'm trying to overcome my porn addiction or I'm trying to be faithful to my spouse and if I win that battle, then I win the victory over sexual temptation. But what I want to argue what you see in Scripture is that part of the battle is overcoming personal temptation, but the full victory of that distortion that the world has brought on God's design for sex is that as I am healed from those distortions, I now become a crusader for that very heart of God to fight the sex industry, human trafficking. It is out of the flow of that conviction that we try to right those wrongs. Our fight against racism and abortion even. It's not fundamentally a political fight. It's to say, I believe that every person is made in the image of God and has eternal value. And it is out of that core conviction that God has righted the wrong in my own heart as to how I used to value people and say, if you're not one of us, then you're one of them and you don't really matter to me. That work of God in my life that causes me to look at people of different ethnicities and reach out to them and do what I can to help the foreigner, the immigrant. Listen, Right now, our country looks like it's such a mess. And I think it's happened with this last election cycle. Everything has become so politicized, right? Build that wall, build that wall. And I don't know, even in our church, I think politically we differ. Some of you may be Trump supporters. Some of you wish that he would be impeached, right? But when I'm talking about social justice here, I'm not just trying to talk about lobbying 
Congress here, not primarily talking about policy decisions. These are necessary conversations for us to have as a nation. Okay, There are issues like that about sovereignty of a nation and protecting its borders and yet having compassion to those who are already here. These are not simple solutions. But what I am saying is as the church of Jesus Christ, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, whichever aisle, part of the side of the aisle you're on, as God's people, we're called to have a ministry of compassion and love to them. Amen? And that's regardless of whether you think they have a legitimate place here. It is our victory over the controlling power of money that frees us not only from materialism, but empowers us to be generous and sacrificial in our giving to the poor. You see how it's all connected? That work of righteousness that happens in my heart, so oftentimes we privatize it and just make it a personal journey that's only about me. And what God is constantly trying to show us through the witness of his word is there is an outward component to all of that work I'm doing in your life. So that whether you find victory in the area of sex or money or racism or whatever, There is a ministry to be had in that freedom you've been given through Christ that God wants to do through you. Referencing the Good Samaritan parable, Tim Keller writes, By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in the faith, but everyone is your neighbor. And you must love your neighbor. If a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice. If he doesn't live justly, then he may say with his lips that he is grateful for God's grace, but in his heart he is far from him. If he doesn't care about the poor, it reveals that at best he doesn't understand the grace he has experienced. And at worst, he has not really encountered the saving mercy of God. Grace should make you just. I think this is a wrestling that all of us need to go through in our own hearts. You know, because I think there may be some baggage you've got to deal with when you think about poor people, the people that are marginalized. And truth is, maybe you're walking around with a very typical middle-class bias of, well, they deserve it. <laughs> I studied hard in school, and they obviously didn't. That's why they're homeless. You know, like, if I give that guy $10, what's he going to do? Just buy booze. I don't want to enable him. I want you to unpack what your feelings are about the poor, the destitute, the marginalized. And what, what Keller is saying, what the Bible is saying is, if you've really experienced grace, undeserved grace, then how are you going to view the others in your society? who may have gotten to their station in life because of poor decisions. And yet based on that, is that good enough a rationale to discard them and say, I don't care what you do with your life. The passage closes with this field trip to a place called Shiloh. He says, all of you get on the bus and let's go to Shiloh. In verses 12 to 14, it says this, go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. 
When I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. You see, Shiloh was Israel's first capital before Jerusalem. It was where Moses' tabernacle dwelt, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's Shekinah glory was, the presence, glory of his presence dwelt to show that he was happy with Israel. It was where the great prophet Samuel conducted his ministry in Shiloh. And God says, take a trip to Shiloh and tell me what you see there. Because even by the time of Jeremiah, all it was was a heap of rubble. It was ruins. There was nothing there. And he's saying, you say in Jerusalem, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God would never touch this temple. And God says, oh, really? Look at what I did to Shiloh, where my covenant once was. And says the same thing is going to happen here in Jerusalem because of your disobedience. And we can think and say, yeah, but that's Old Testament, you know? We're living in the New Testament. But I would invite you to go to the book of Revelation and look at Jesus' letters to the seven churches and says, if you don't do what I'm asking you, I will remove that lampstand from you. He says that to every one of these churches. This is my hope. And I felt like this is not the right message to leave with. You know, I'm sabbatical. But um, I hope this starts a conversation at ICC because I'll be honest, as the lead pastor of this church, I'll be the first one to confess and admit this is not one of our stronger muscles as a faith community. It's not. And it's been something we've been asking as we've located from Schaumburg Hoffman Estates out here to Wheeling. How can we bless the people of Wheeling and this greater community and be the light and the salt, a city on a hill? I'll be honest with you. I don't know what that need is. I really don't. But this is a journey that we need to go on together as a community. Not, not just to be some quirky religious community that has renovated an office complex. And people say, yeah, like, do you see that cross in front of that building? You know? And we put up that sign every Sunday. But we need to be a presence in this place. And it has to first start with the work that God does in our heart. Not activism or humanitarianism, but righteousness and justice flowing like waters of God's heart for his people and the people that are not called by his name yet being reached with his love. Let's pray.